Hello, hello, this is Tracy Harrell, and welcome to Bigger Than Me. Each week, we focus on how to achieve your definition of success and happiness. On Bigger Than Me, we bring together a combination of ageless wisdom, the latest research, and engaging interviews with amazing people who are sharing their stories to help each of us achieve our full potential. Your journey to transformation begins right now. Let's do this. Oh my goodness, I am so excited. I love doing a live show. What's really exciting about a live show is that you know that we are just being our most authentic self. And what I love about Bigger Than Me is I am 100% on purpose. And by that, I mean, I'm doing exactly what I was meant to do. Bigger Than Me has a very simple mission. I say we use technology, community, and positive psychology to help good people do great things. We do very simple, three simple things. We tell stories, we share wisdom, we elevate expectations. And today we're going to elevate your expectations on a very interesting topic. You know, this came up because of what's happening in the world today. So we're going to talk about how to become visible, how to stop corporate chokeholds. And I created that term corporate chokeholds as I watched the um, murder of George Floyd. And I thought, wow, you know, and as this whole episode evolved, I thought, you know, We've done these a lot of research around what we call key challenges in corporate America, things that we know are are um, barriers to advancements, barriers to success that cause trauma. These things that are are experienced as injustices, and they happen every day, over and over and over. And what what I think is most important is for us to have a real conversation about those things and acknowledge them for really what they are. They're corporate chokeholds, and you know we have executives that talk about you know the desire to have a, a diverse and inclusive environment where everyone can thrive. And honestly, I believe that that is the case. And so what we're gonna do, we just started this amazing Bigger Than Me success series. Because what I realized, I was put on this earth to help people to be successful. And when I say successful, I mean successful in whatever they want to accomplish. And right now, there's a lot of individuals in, in America and around the world who want to understand this racial equity situation. And, um, we're going to help you with that. And so today I have six amazing guests. Um, and we're going to talk about the truth about corporate chokeholds. The chokeholds are unconscious bias, again, unequal performance standards, similarity bias, and something that's called CEO, the lack of CEO accountability. There's a think tank that's on the National Black MBA Association's website. Um, if you want to get details on the think tank, the research, et cetera. So this is going to be our baseline. Today we're going to talk to real people about their experience. So I'm going to go ahead and start that our, and ask our guests to introduce themselves. I'm going to start with Miss Erin Jones. And the first question is, since this is a Bigger Than Me success series, we want to really start with what does success look like? Meaning, we're going to talk about diversity and inclusion. What does what does that look like to you? What does success look like to you? What would you like to see as, as it relates to equity and justice? So, so my name is Erin Jones, and I am a 30-year veteran educator. I also um, was the oldest woman in the WNBA at 20 
years old, so I've tried out for two WNBA teams. Um, I've been our state's Milk and Educator of the Year. Um, I was the first Black woman in the state of Washington to run for a state office. I lost that by one percentage point. So on the kind of on how most people measure success, I've had a lot of success in my life. But as an educator, when I think of what success looks like, I think it has to be more than about money. I think we have focused success even in school spaces and education spaces around money for children, thinking about getting educated to get a job, to become middle class or upper middle class, become a lawyer, doctor. Like we have these levels of expectation um, to get certain test scores, that's success. For uh, in the teaching force and the adult side of we've said success is becoming a principal, becoming an administrator, becoming a superintendent. I actually want to push back against those notions of success. I believe when I talk about racial equity, and that's what I do now, I've been a, a trainer in racial equity for the last three or four years. So I do half-time work with educators around racial equity, and then half-time work speaking to students about my own personal story. I really want to challenge the notion of equity being how do we help every person in this country thrive? And what thriving looks like for you may be very different from what it looks like for me. So when students ask me all the time, I've been honored by President Obama at the White House. Um, I've gotten to meet Magic Johnson. I've played basketball with Dr. J. And, and students ask me all the time, wow, what's your greatest success? And I tell them all the time, I haven't experienced it yet. Yes. Mm, I am striving to be a better version of me tomorrow that, or today than I was yesterday. I want to strive to be better tomorrow than I, I am today. And so success for me is not about position, it's not about power, it's not about money. It's about how do I show up in the world and make a bigger impact? And I and what that means for me is that I gotta, I gotta do something in my spirit, soul, mind, body, all of that to become better in all of those areas all the time. And um, you know, I just turned 49 last week on Wednesday. And my goal before my 49th birthday was to run less than nine minute miles. As a woman at 49 years old, I wanted, to, and I did I actually ran a 5K in 26 minutes and 38 seconds. And that was my metaphor for how I wanna live life. I, I don't want to have some measure, whenever I reach the bar, I wanna stretch higher. And that's what I want my students to do. I want them to see a bar, but I want it to be more about your character and who you are, not what you do. So success for me is about becoming a better person, a better who, than a better what. I love that. I love that. And again, you're one of my favorite people. We will continue to bring you on as we continue this series. This will be a series, a bigger than me success series on the topic of equity and inclusion. Going to address a number of different topics today we're talking about these corporate chokeholds these known key challenges and we'll bring these conversations forward again we're going to talk about education we're going to talk about wealth gap we're going to talk about health the health gaps we're going to talk about all kinds of things as a part of this series but today we're focused on racial equity and racial justice and we're going to go down the down the the the, uh, go a little deeper on this concept of racial injustices. So my next guest that I'm going to ask to uh, introduce themselves is Isaiah Priest. Mr. Isaiah, can you introduce yourself? And on the topic of racial equity and justice, if we were trying to, this is a success series, and we have to start with the end in mind. What would that look like to you? What does what racial uh, equity and racial justice look like to you? Isaiah, 
Depends. Okay, so I'm good. Okay, Isaiah. I love live shows. So we're gonna let Isaiah come back and we'll wave down when he gets in. Miss um, Anissa, are you there? I'm here, can you hear me? I can't. So why don't you answer the question for us, the concept of racial equity and racial justice. We wanna start with what does success look like? To me, um, I agree with Aaron, success is not a, um, a financial figure. Success is representation. It's seeing yourself in all levels from the bottom to the top. There shouldn't be a threshold that you get to and then it just stops. So to me, success is being able to see that throughout no matter what the um, business is. Um, and, I, and I can go back, I didn't introduce myself, but my name is Anissa Mason and I'm a registered nurse, a community nurse and I work in home health. Um, I take care of those in, in our community for the last six years. And um, it's very important to me to be out there teaching healthcare um, to our community because there's been a lot of distrust in healthcare. And that's a lot of unteaching that I have to do, that it is okay when you don't feel good to go see a doctor or how to advocate for yourself when you do. Um, but success is also that, being confident to take care of ourselves. Tracy, I see you talking, but I don't hear you. Uh, Nate, stop, stop uh, muting me if you don't mind. Uh, I'll unplug my fan, I think that's the problem. Um, stop muting me, please. Uh, Rachel Green, if you can introduce yourself and then tell us what does racial equity and racial justice look like to you? Um, my name is Rachel Green. I'm a program manager. I implement um, cybersecurity and business intelligence technology for um, companies around the world. Um, racial justice and equality to me looks like you get stopped by the police and not potentially killed. All right now. All right. I love it. I love it. Um, we have Dr. David Statton. Yes. Uh, can you introduce yes. yourself and tell us what does racial justice and racial equity look like to you? What does success look like? Yes. Um, thank you, uh, Tracy, for having me on. Uh, my name is <clears throat> David Statton, and um, I'm a professor at South Carolina State University, uh, which is an HBCU. And I've been teaching at South Carolina State University for 19 years now. I am also the editor of the HBCU Times Magazine. And success to me is basically being able uh, for one to maximize his or her um, potential and to find um, whatever gift that one has um, inside and to operate in a manner um, of respect and dignity um, across the board and um, racial equity and, and justice for me is basically, you know, having equal standards that are applied across the board and, and being um, measured um, by what you're able to do and not by the color of one's skin. So that's pretty much my response in a nutshell. Thank you. All right. All right, Nate, I'm not sure if we got Isaiah's back. Isaiah, are you there? Yeah. Can you hear us? Can you hear me? We can. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's all good. Isaiah, you know, we like to start with the end in mind, right? This is a new Bigger Than Me success series. We're going to have tons. I'll talk more about it another time. But mm -hmm. in order to start a series, 
you want to focus on what does success look like to you? What does racial justice and racial equity look like? What would you like to see? Yeah. Um, so hello, everyone from Minneapolis. That's what I was saying earlier. So the epicenter, they would call it right now. But now the world is epicenter globally with everything going on. So, um, But, you know, for me, when I think about this and having been in, you know, almost 30 years of corporate and then entrepreneurship and all those different things, uh, you know, and then being born and raised in South Carolina and having graduated from um, an HBCU, proud graduate, South Carolina State University Bulldogs. Uh, here's, in a nutshell, here's how I look at kind of the end in mind as we get into the subject matter. You know, I've realized that people can only meet you as deeply as you have met, as they have met themselves. Meaning, when we think about this from an end perspective, there's something still inside of us, right? As a person, as an individual, um, that you have to really think about what you think about racial inequity and justice and injustice. We first have to think about how we view ourselves. And we always, we're being taught about always worry about what your brand looks like inside the corporate walls or out. But you have to then first have to back up and say, you know, what does my brand look like within me? So as we get to this conversation about racial inequity and justice and how we're looked upon in and outside the walls of corporate and entrepreneurship or just in our personal and professional lives. It's true. I mean, Stephen Pressfield said, you know, most of us have two lives, the life we live and the unlived life within us. Mm, See? I love that. So, so, we, so we can't play this thing, right? Uh, back in Sumter, South Carolina, I was born, the preacher said, you can't have one foot in the world and one foot, you know, in church. So either you're going to be inside the circle. So that's what we are now. We've got this world of everything that's happening in front of us as we get and go forward in this discussion about where do we see ourselves in this unlived life. I love it. I love it. Thank you for that. Um, what, what I really wanted to do next is, you know, when I think about what I, how I felt and where we are today, like we're at a, a tipping point, obviously, as it relates to, you know, racial tensions in, in America. And, you know, I feel a little bit like Colin Kaepernick when it, of the corporate world in that, you know, I took a knee and, and I identified what was happening. I took, you know, identified that various injustices were happening. I did, you know, created, you know, training internally within corporate America focused on like, how do we change things? And, and you know, taking a knee means you um, kind of suck it up, you know, and you just do what you can to move things forward. And now that, you know, we have Goodell saying we should have listened and everyone's listening. I guess my question is, you know, when you think about this, the death of George Floyd. I don't want to move past it. We're going to move past it really quickly. Anyone who wants to share like really like a 30 second rapid fire, because I know some of you said you didn't even see the video because you it was too difficult. But I didn't want to move past it because I'm, I'm always very solution oriented. I was in, I experienced a lot of these corporate chokeholds personally, and I focused on how do we fix things? That's all I wanted to do was fix it so that no one, you know, after us experienced the same, you know, situation. Uh, you know, we talk about in the key challenges in this National Black MBA Association think tank, you know, we did this work and we identified, it was called the state of the black professional. And the same things we talk about, we've been talking about for 40 years. And so I really wanted to be the one to actually, you know, help take a stand. A lot of people are doing this work, but I wanted to also invest my life in taking a stand. So I took a knee, 
basically. And now we have people that are listening and they're listening because a man lost his life. George Floyd lost his life. And because we witnessed it, him actually being extinguished, it changed the world. And so I want to just acknowledge that as, as the tipping point. And does anyone want to comment on, how did you feel when you saw that video? Uh, can, let, me, let me jump in a little bit since you mentioned NFL. So um, I have a very good friend uh, who's had a sports show for years. He and his brother, um, two live suit called Doug Stewart, right? And if he was on here, he would jump in on that comment of the NFL, right? So here's what I looked at that comment of Roger Goodell. Everyone forgets. I, was, I posted back and said, I'm not impressed. Why? Because Roger stood, Roger did the video. The last time I checked, unless someone can correct me, the NFL didn't own any teams. They're all individual owners. So impressed me by having all of the owners. Why didn't the owners? I didn't see Jerry Jones. I didn't see the owners from the new, new owners from Carolina Panthers. They put Roger up to take the bullet. Okay, Roger, you're protecting your $20 million salary. Good for you. But the last time I checked, every NFL team was franchise-owned. So in actuality, the apology has not been done yet. There is no apology. You just became the whipping boy is what happened. We don't want that to happen where someone becomes a whipping boy. It leads then into the comment, uh, the next statement about these pledge statements. Great. I'm watching all these CEOs. They filled up our timelines with our pledge statements, our commitments, all of this. And here's my thing, my challenge back to all of you. Thank you, but what we won't and don't need is more money going to the black ERG group now because you wanna throw more money and throw more social events. And for any chairperson who's leading a black ERG group, don't take it so you can throw more social events. That's not the fix, to throw more money at, let, let them have more. This is a strategic annual operating plan discussion inside those walls and outside those walls. And I'll leave with this comment as we let someone else chime in. I remember my daughter uh, scraped her knee, you know, many moons ago and she was bleeding and thought she was going to see God. And we had that discussion, right? But as I cleaned out her wound, she said, hey dad, I can see the white meat of my skin. So my challenge and task that Back to everyone who's written these wonderfully, nicely written pledge commitment letters, CEOs, all the way up to the boardroom. Go ask someone that reports to you, male or female, and to, what did he mean by they can see the white meat? That means the cut is deeper than you think with this. And it should be part of your annual operating plan, strategic plan. I love it. I love it. Thank you for that. So for everyone on the call, if you're not speaking, if you can mute, uh, except for me, <laughs> but just because I think I'm hearing a, a sound in the background. So what I loved about that, two things I'm going to say, and I'm going to contradict you because again, we're all individuals with different opinions. I led the largest diversity resource group um, in Florida. I was president of the diversity resource group at Disney. Disney is the largest single source employer in the, in the nation. And so that was called Pulse, People United to Lead, Serve, and Excel. They were always underfunded. So I'm not going to agree with you that there should not be additional funds for the internal, the resource groups. Brian Constable. Well, Mike, just want to throw more parties with the money. That's all I'm saying. Well, maybe, maybe not. I mean, I think you just need to be, you know, hold everyone accountable, right? So I think there is a funding issue. I don't think that's the answer. There's not one answer, right? I mean, I think part of the work that I did while um, I was, um, in corporate America, one of the initiatives that I created was called the Adaptive Leadership Equity and Inclusion Initiative. Um, 
and it's all about adaptive leadership. It's about changing based on the individuals and the situation and it's work that we're going to be doing and, and offering as a part of this initiative. And so um, I'll be putting information on my website. It's all bigger than me. We have an event on 7-7, July 7th. Every show I'm literally dedicating the next multiplicity of my shows um, until I can get actually more time um, to focus on this topic because I do think there are people who want to, to do the right thing, they just need information to do so. We've done all the work. We actually have the answers. They just weren't ready. It was like they, you know, we took a knee. We said there were problems. Now I think they might be ready to listen. And so I think that's the exciting part is that you know these aren't you know there's a series of answers. I think we have you know we have to be adapted as it relates to those answers. Um, does anyone else want to talk about George Floyd? Otherwise I'm going to move move on because we, we're moving um, about the experience that you had. Anissa, I know you made an interesting comment when I asked you about. Um, Let me chime in too. Let me, let me get Anissa to, to respond to respond real okay. quick, okay. Um, and then you can jump on in. Anissa, tell me what you said when I asked you if you had watched um, the George Floyd video. Um, I did not watch did the video. Um, I didn't watch the video because um, I heard the audio first. And I was listening to the radio, and they played the audio, and I heard the audio, and it was like the most horrific thing I'd ever heard. It touched me in a way that I knew I wasn't gonna wanna see the video. So um, not watching the video has been more of a protection, protecting myself from those horrors. And earlier what I was saying to Aaron was, you know, it's self-care, protecting ourselves from those because it's almost as if they keep killing us and then they wanna desensitize us from seeing those killings so that it's normalized. So I won't watch it. I have been able to avoid it thankfully up until now. That's awesome. That is awesome. Um, David, Dr. David Satin, did you want to say something on this topic real quick? Yeah, How did you she, feel when you saw the George Floyd video? Well, um, like I did not watch the video either because I've seen um, the Mike Brown video. I've seen the Eric Garner video. And I think she's absolutely right. Um, when you get to the point where you're desensitized, I mean, you have to ask the question, how did we get to this point? And for me, it's, you know, just years and years of dehumanization of African-Americans um, that has gotten to the point where it doesn't bother people to see us um, handled in this manner. And it's, it's really problematic. And when I say dehumanization, I'm just talking about the negative images um, with regards to African-Americans that you see on television, uh, you see in videos, um, the media, etc. And um, as a solution, uh, the thing that comes to mind for me is I think we need some type of humanitization project. And that's one of the reasons why I started the HBCU Times magazine. That's just to pro project um, positive images of African-American men and women. And I'll pause it there. That. I love that. I love that. So we're going to move to the next question. Based on the time, I'm actually going to express us through this process. And we'll come back. Like I said, I'll invite you guys back another time. We'll do some offline conversations as well and post those videos on our uh, website. It's allbiggerthanme.com as well as on our YouTube site. It's all bigger than me. So we're going to continue to build and continue this conversation. And weekly, we're going to have these live shows and invite people to participate. What I wanted to do is read the beginning of a um, executive summary that I wrote to send to uh, out to some CEOs, some executives. And I want to get your thoughts about it. And then we're going to go individually into um, conversations about each of these, what I'm calling corporate uh, chokeholds. So the same type of racism, injustices, inequities, abuse, and trauma that is being protested in the streets of America based on police brutality are also happening inside the workplace 
as an embedded part of the corporate culture and business. Many black workers experience key challenges or corporate chokeholds every day. These aren't just minor annoyances. These can be devastating experiences that drain life from our bodies, changing everything. Corporate chokeholds is a term that I, a new term that I define as those known injustices, key challenges that are oppressive, they're abusive, and they include things that we talk about every day in corporate America, just like it's nothing. You mentioned the term normalized. We talk about terms like unconscious bias. We've all been trained on it. We talk about it like it's just another thing. For us, it's an abusive experience. For some of us, it's abusive, abusive in an extreme way. There's been tons of research um, that talks about how exclusion is perceived by the brain as pain. And we know that. I've seen that written in one of the DNI leaders' uh, LinkedIn posts. And I thought, well, if you know that, then you know that these things that are happening that have been normalized for us, it's okay, right? It's really not okay, right? Now is the time for us to think differently. So these corporate chokeholds, legalized lynchings, basically, because people die. Your life is shortened when you have these types of experiences over and over and over. Check some Harvard research. It's all, yeah, this isn't, this isn't me. This is, this is what we know. We just haven't been responding the same. So the four things are, the four challenges or the four corporate chokeholds are unconscious bias, similarity bias, unequal performance standards, and a lack of CEO accountability. That's just the first item. I, that's the problem. We also have a whole series of information that we talk about, which is the proposal. So what I said is, given the current tipping point of race relations in America, it's time to create a safe place to normalize a deeper conversation to embrace a new adaptive leadership approach to inclusion, to create a new level of empathy at all levels, to transform accountability measures to achieve immediate results and also long-term results. We really have reached a critical point in history where status quo just isn't enough and doing more of the same is no longer acceptable. And companies can't self-police. We need to rebuild trust we need to rethink, rethink our training, and we need to address the trauma, and we need to do it together. There really is power, purpose, and progress in coming together and growing together and in changing together. So the ask is very simple, dear CEO. This is an open invitation for leaders to participate in a new nationwide initiative called the Bigger Than Me Unite for Change Success Series. It's an adaptive leadership-based community collaboration that's designed to stop corporate chokeholds. Although there has been progress, it's really time for real change now. We need to truly focus on making a difference in the lives of those that we know are most affected. Businesses, families, and communities they now all expect more. Your employees, your customers, and your stakeholders will now demand more. So my question is, are you ready to put your growth mindset into action? Are you ready to help us actually end corporate chokeholds? Get ready. I believe that together, we really can change things. 
Like Obama, I believe, yes, we can. And it really does start with awareness. So I'm just gonna, you know, move into the, the next phase of the conversation where we're gonna ask these amazing people on the call about the experiences that we're talking about, just to kind of provide a little more clarity about what that looks like. So Miss Rachel, you always amuse me. <laughs> when yes. you tell the story, again, we have we could talk about this a number of different ways, but the concept, one of the one of the um corporate chokeholds, one of the key challenges that's documented in the, in the National Black MBA State of the Black Professional Report um, is this concept of unequal performance standards. And when you and I laughed and joked about that, you had the most amazing story that I think clarifies, animates what that experience feels like for us. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about unequal performance standards? Absolutely. Um, and, and this, um, I was actually discussing it with a mentor of mine when I didn't have words to explain the experience that I had. And he put it into a fable, a story, <laughs> um, which is the best way to learn, um, which is how we learn traditionally. So he, um, I had did something that had never been done in the company. As a matter of fact, they tried it before and failed. And when I was successful, me and the team, no one, like congratulated us. It was it was just like yeah and next. So I I it was un it my brain couldn't wrap my head. I just couldn't wrap my head around what was going on. And so I talked to my mentor about it, and he said, "Oh yeah, like like it's, it, this is not uncommon." He said, um, "It's like you've been invited to a campfire, and they give you chewing gum and tape, and send you out into the woods to kill the bear." So first of all, you are un, un, um, you're not equipped to ha handle the challenge. You don't have the, the um, strategic relationships. You um, don't have the right resources, but um, they want you to go kill the bear. So I get tape and chewing gum and I go out into the woods um, and everyone else is at the campfire, you know, making s'mores, singing camp songs, um, holding hands, singing kumai. Everybody else is just um, at the fire, staying warm, enjoying the fire, enjoying each other. Um, and days go by, weeks, months, and I come back with the bear. I come back into the middle of the camp and throw the bear in the middle of, the, of, the, of our circle and say, yes, I did it. And everyone's looking at me like I grew another head. And I'm like, I did it. I killed the bear. And he said, and nobody else is excited, right? And I was like, yeah, it's something that's never been done before. He said, do you want to know why they are not excited? I said, yes, I would like to know that. He said, because if someone sends you into the woods with gum and tape and say, kill a bear, you're not supposed to come back with the bear. <laughs> Wow. Does anyone else on this call, I think, is that hilarious? Does anyone else on this call, has anyone else, did, we, we call this in the South, the amen corner. Does anyone <laughs> got an amen for Rachel? Amen. amen. Yes. 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 It's funny because that was my experience as well. And it was shocking. It was actually traumatizing. <laughs> to me, but you know, and it's funny because and these are people who I know are wonderful, loving, kind individuals, which is why I'm so focused on education. I don't think they know, I'm gonna, I have to assume that this is not intentional, right? I have to assume that, they, that they're just not aware, which is why my focus is on information. This concept of adaptive leadership, it's, it's about creating a safe space. There's no judgment, 
we know this happens. The question is, how do we prevent it from happening in the future? What are things that we can do as a community? So I'm inviting white executives, leaders, individuals, black professionals to come together as a part of this bigger than me success series. We're going to talk about these things. We're going to have a create create a safe space. We, we, we're going to we're going to move this initiative forward together. What's really exciting is we're also going to offer. We're going to have a book that's written as a part of this process. We have a timeline that's laid out. I'll talk about it in detail next week. But we want to invite people to really be a part of this experience. There's some experts. Erin um, has done this work for years. She's an expert as it relates to equity and inclusion. And so, you know, one of the things I also wanted to ask Erin, I'll go to you on the question regarding um, the first corporate chokehold, we'll call it unconscious bias. Can you tell us, have you ever experienced unconscious bias and, and, and what does that mean? <laughs> wow. Um, so I actually don't do training on unconscious bias. I mean, unconscious bias is, uh, it's the, the messages that we have all taken in just by living in America. And and I'll say of everyone on the call, I think I'm the only one that was raised in another country. So I was raised with a totally different history, a totally different cultural environment. I was raised in the Netherlands where in the 70s and 80s, Americans were perceived as these amazing people. And if you were a black American and you were an athlete and a musician and could speak other languages, it was like, oh, and that was me. So I was, I was treated really, I tell people, I know what it's like to be treated like a white person because I was until I came to America at 18 years old. And suddenly it was like, what, what land have I come to? I thought the civil rights amendment had already happened. I thought the Cosby show was the norm for how people lived in this country. And that was when I, I came to understand really quickly that it's in the water here. Like we have narratives about skin color that are in the water in this country. I remember when I met my husband in 19, um, 1990, we went to go see a movie and there was a black secondary character in this movie. And he said, oh my gosh, that person's gonna die. And I said, how do you know they're gonna die? He said, cause the black character always gets killed off first. And of course the person did die, but it's these narratives that are just, they're soaked into, they're baked into everything. Native Americans are alcoholics. They're all poor, they're all drug addicts. There's this stuff that is in every movie. It's in our textbooks and history. It's in the literature that we read. I was shocked when I came to America and I had read Langston Hughes. I had read James Baldwin. I'd read Maya Angelou. I'd read over in Europe because they love, they love the Harlem Renaissance. They love all of that. So I had read all that stuff. And I get to America and people who look like me had no idea who those folks were. And they were lucky if they knew anything besides that I have a dream speech. But what made it, it became so clear to me that even we were not expected to be educated or educators. And that became really, but it's all that unconscious bias. And, and here's the danger of it. The danger in a lot of ways as a teacher is that we have taken those messages in as well. So not only have white people taken those messages in about us, our children are taking these messages in for themselves about their own potential. So guess what? It doesn't require even a white teacher to tell you, you can't be this or that because they've already internalized. Oh, Miss Jones, I'm going to be a, a, an NFL player, an NBA player, because that's the one message they had heard. And then I would take those little babies out onto the basketball court in the fifth grade and kick their behinds in front of everybody and say, OK, what's your plan B? Because y'all are not all going to the NBA. And I believe all of you are probably smarter than, than I mean, some of you may, but 
the reality is you can be a baller, like I'm a baller and I'm an academic. Why can't it be both ands? And so the danger of those, those unconscious biases is not only white people, it's how we also internalize those messages about our own potential. The last thing I wanna say is when I do training on racial equity now, I actually don't talk about safe spaces. I actually don't want safe spaces because safe spaces are only safe for certain people. They're not ever safe for us. It is not ever safe. I do all my training in front of mostly white audiences. It is never safe for me, but I will always be brave. I believe my training as a basketball player with mostly men made me very brave. And I take that into spaces where I am training mostly white leaders in education. And I tell them, I actually don't want this to be a safe space. You're gonna need to take risks here. You're gonna need to get uncomfortable here because without that discomfort, we're never gonna move ahead. Having a baby required lots of discomfort. Getting faster as a runner required pushing through discomfort. If we're safe, we actually don't learn and grow in effective and long lasting ways. Okay, so I love you. And when I have a show and I say the words, I love you, it's because I really love you. Like you don't even know. So yes, and yes, and the concept of a safe place uh, space is important. I've done years of training on adaptive leadership and, and safe spaces um, is a term that requires um, a commitment to learn in public. It's a commitment to become comfortable being uncomfortable. So yeah. safe doesn't mean you're not comfortable, uncomfortable. Safe does not mean that at all. It means you won't be judged. It means we, we understand that you are uh, here for a particular reason. We're all here for the same purpose. So anyone, I, I'm inviting people to come on this journey with us. If you're gonna create a safe space, you have to have safe spaces. Safe means you're gonna hear people, you know, you're gonna hear a certain level of heat on occasion, but there's a special place where you know you can't get too hot. Again, everyone's voice matters. I'll do a whole nother session on adaptive leadership and what a safe space looks like, and I'll bring in some more experts. But it's my area of expertise, so trust me on this one. Uh, safe does not mean uh, comfortable. Safe right. means you know it's you're safe in a, to grow, and then you're right. You know, in order to grow, you got to do a little. You got to do a little work. So I promise you, we'll, we'll talk more about that one. Can I? Uh, can you hear me? So let me switch about what, let me kind of add on to what, uh, what Aaron said. She, she's, she's right in a large degree. It's about power, right? We, for a long time, we, you know, I would say African-Americans or minority spirits, we were trying to figure out how can we control what's happening? And instead of trying to, instead of maybe taking a step back and challenge ourselves to really think about how we should respond to what's happening. We, we, that's what the power really is. So we have an opportunity to take back our power. And, and but the question is, when did we decide that we had to give up our power? For example, I was born in the South, and I will tell you, there are, ex, there are extreme differences between those who were born in North, South, East, and West. In the South, we love hugging. David can attest to that, right? We, but when you think about that, you're also talking about some areas in the deep south where, whereby there aren't, there isn't any cable, there isn't anything. So when you're being told that you can't go to school or, or you won't go to school, you were either going to say, you need to go in the military or you saw some people doing some stuff on the streets. You really didn't want to even go in that light, but you may have. But my point is there's a extreme difference about how we are being raised in North, South, East and West down only, not only from the education standpoint or what we're being told, and what our belief, what we start believing as a child, 
it takes it into our personal and professional life. Because then once you enter the walls, whether you're an entrepreneur or end up in the walls of corporate America, you start telling yourself, and you start asking, and am I good enough? Oh, just because I went to South Carolina State versus Harvard. That, that no. So we're at this point of what can we do from this unconscious bias of this belief of where we are. In a book that I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, Black Manager Making in Corporate America, written back in 1972, right? There's What's one the yeah, black, black, black manager make it in corporate America. I mean, they were truly ahead of their times when they wrote that book in 1972. It was a book that I was given my first corporate job. And one of the, and there's four phases you go through, but one of the main phases that you will go through in corporate America is called assimilation. And when you read that chapter, I don't care if you start a new job or been at a company for 30 years, it is the fact that it's a simulation. Like we feel like, I have to fit in. I have to do some simulation. We gave up the power of a simulation. And the question is, why do we have to assimilate? Yes, I see it now, natural hair. We see all of that now. But in, in essence, you're still asking yourself, am I still working really, really hard to assimilate? Therefore, it's being brought up through our school system with our children. Then our children take that into work world. They take it into their professional life. And then, of course, I'm back to what I'm saying. You start making decisions, both in your professional life. Am I smart enough? Can I run this department? We should never question ourselves. So we have to change the way we challenge ourselves to how we respond. I love that. I love that. What what I love, I, I don't 100% agree with you, but I, I like what you're saying. And the reason reason I'm saying I don't 100% agree with you is, um, anyway, it doesn't matter. I appreciate what you just said. I'm going to move on because what I want to focus on is when you said we question ourselves. What I do agree with you on is that is one of the primary reasons why I have de dedicated my life to wanting to you know, amplify a conversation around this, this initiative, called this Adaptive Leadership Equity and Inclusion Initiative. And this is something that I actually pull together as a, as a partnership with a number of faces, voices, and individuals, uh, research, et cetera. We know what works. It really isn't that complex. Right, we know what how we get how we get conditioned and the simulation that happens. And what I hate to see is these these bright. That's why we have HBCU times on. I want to make sure that every black student from elementary, middle school, probably not elementary, but middle school, high school, and college that they understand the experiences that they may face. Because I think the greatest challenge is, you know, you think you're you know you're told to go to school, get good grades, going to go into right. corporate America. Right. Yes, it's going to be an assimilation. I mean, I, I, when I, my first job out of college was with, with, with IBM. So I worked eight years at IBM, 14 years at Disney, my last five at Microsoft. My eight years um, at IBM, someone, you know, fortunately, before I got there, I, you know, I knew that it was important to assimilate. I knew what that meant. And we talked about the corporate culture, but um, they had changed their culture from big blue to a whole new shade of blue. So it wasn't as formal. They didn't have as far to go. Basically, they were loosening up. It wasn't the blue suit and the white tie. But to your point, you know, I had to, I still had to move on that continuum, but it could have been, you know, even a much further um, change of who I was, but they were really at that point embracing people and asking you to kind of be your unique self. And so one of the things that, that, that frightens me the most and that I wanted to be a champion for is to have our youth come into these environments and question who they are, question how amazing they are. You know, the story that Rachel told, as she told that story, we've all had, many of us have had that experience. I had the experience. The beauty of it is I'm smarter than most. Like I, I know my worth, I know my value. 
So when that happened, you know, they couldn't convince me. <laughs> you know, you could, matter of fact, I wanted more than anything. I wanted a jury of my peers. Talk about no justice, no peace. I could not get any peace at that point. There was no trust. And trust is really important too. If you can't trust that there's an equation that says, you asked me to do one thing, I do five things, right? And I'm going to be rewarded mm -hmm. as such, right? There's a trust issue that happens as well. So for me, this conversation is so important because we're basically saving lives, right? We, we do want our youth to, 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 to live their best life. I'm a direct question to Anissa because we had a conversation that I thought was so beautiful. So Anissa, we were talking about unconscious bias. Um, and you, I'm going to have you combine this conversation of unconscious bias and how you experience it and why it's so important that we want to, right now we're at a place where we can really change things because you have a son. Mm -hmm. You want his experience in life to be different. So tell me about unconscious bias and how you experience it and, and, and why it's so important for us to, to help change the status quo, change the narrative. Are you speaking about when I spoke about my son? Um, when you were talking about at work, first of all, you said your name. Sometimes people see your name, and there's a there's a perception there. But then, then you know, th there's there's an important element for you to get past. You talked about you know code switching, right? You yeah. kind of bl blended that whole concept. Right, right. My name is um, kind of gives away what I might look like, and a lot of my job is spent speaking on the phone, calling patients and whatnot. And so uh, one unconscious bias I've run into a lot with patients in the healthcare field is that they assume the name Anissa means I must not be from here, or they see me with natural hair or wrap my hair a lot. And so after the care I give or the communication I have with them, it's very common that they go, your English is so well, you speak so, so good. And, and um, as frustrating as that can be, you know, it's, you know, it's easy to go, well, it should be, you know, I was born right up at Swedish first hill, you know, just down, down the road. And so um, that's one unconscious bias that I spoke of, but um, I also spoke about how my direct supervisor is a black woman and how that has given me the confidence to be able um, to say those things, you know, to, to speak my truth and be my truth because she understands as well. She has had similar experiences. And so she's always gets my back. And when I go talk to her, it's not an, uh, an issue of having to code switch. That's where code switching came in. We can talk how we normally would talk. I can, we can get loud with each other. And because that is just culturally how we do, we can laugh and be loud and, and all of those things. Whereas I've had other supervisors um, in the same organization where, I mean, the talk is respectful, but I have to fold myself. I have to present myself in a different way. And so that, that was the conversation that we had mm -hmm. and, and it's freeing. It's very freeing to have that representation or to know that I have that back and that I could be myself and I could just go out and do my job and, um, and doing your job should speak for itself. And it does. So I can tell those patients, well, yeah, my English is great because I was born right here in Seattle, Washington. And, but me doing my job and doing it well, they don't see it as a threat. They don't see it as a pushback. They don't see it as an attitude because they got the care that they needed. And so usually at the end of those visits, it's just, okay, well, she said that, but you took really good care of me. So let's just leave it at that. <laughs> so, so I, 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 it's back to, I'm, I'm back to that simulation. She was like, oh, you see, I, I heard that her story. Oh, for sure. Simulation is 100% a part of the process. We only have nine minutes left, Isaiah. So you're going to give you 30 seconds to make it. Yeah, yeah. So, no, let me speak again about this. We're having to prove ourselves. For example, 
and David can speak to this um, as well, right? Think about it. Um, when we look at companies, she's in healthcare. Okay, that's one of the industries that quite honestly has always like most of them, been predominantly white. Let's just call it the way it is. Technology, the same way, right? Now let's get back to when we would hear recruiters talk about some of the corporations I work for. Oh, we can't find any code on those who are engineer, computer science and developers. And I would say to myself, so um, let me explain something to you. There are 26 of the 101 plus HBCUs. There are 26 HBCUs that computer science engineering departments that pass the same rigor and test as West Point, Georgia Tech and all of them. So let's, let me go back. Do you know that North Carolina AT has produced more engineers and PhDs than any school black or white in the country? Oh, by the way, do you know Xavier? Xavier, the little black school in New Orleans? Oh, I'm sorry, their passing rate for those who are becoming doctors at 92%, Harvard is 72. So why aren't you going to Xavier to recruit? You see what I mean? So again, based on back to this, we're having to always justify and all those schools pass A&T, SAMU passed the same engineering rigor as Georgia Tech and West Point, but you won't, oh, I can't find it. No, you're not going there. And, you know, you guys are all so amazing. The fact that this is the fastest hour of my life is insane. Um, Nate, I'm, Nathan, I'm going to have you pull up really quickly that one slide that shows the challenge, the image, the challenges to advancement. So we're going to come back to this, of course. Um, again, this is this, this is what we're talking about. So next week, we're, we're going to continue this conversation. Challenges to advancement. Again, this is what we know to be a fact. Did Dr. Tart ever join, Nathan? Okay, I'm going to assume not. So we have these four uh key challenges. These are things that I'm now coining the phrase corporate chokeholds, chokeholds, because I really want to bring a new level of awareness to the conversation. Um, Anissa, you mentioned how we normalize, you know, certain behavior that really we perceive as injustices, like I said. And so unconscious bias, unequal performance standards, this idea of similarity bias is, is similarity bias by itself is actually not a, a challenge. Uh, Isaiah, I heard you mention it's really when the power comes in. Because I actually had similarity bias when I when I voted for uh, Barack Obama, right? Initially, I saw Hillary Clinton and I thought, okay, she's I love her. She's very much like me. She's a you know woman. She's she's world traveled. She's smart. Yep, you know she's she's she, you know she's courageous and willing to go out and you know and change things. I loved her. And then I met and then I heard Barack Obama, this guy who was you know good looking. You know what I'm saying? No, I'm just. Uh, but he, you know, inspirational. He spoke about a future that we all wanted to see. He was also smart. He had done work locally, you know, but so they both had their advantages and disadvantages. And then when it came down to him being more positive, right, I saw Hillary doing a little attacking. And so I didn't like the negative energy. I'm more positive than anything else. And so then Barack Obama, actually, you know, I, I had similarity bias and I voted for him. So the concept of these terms, we all have these things. So these things in themselves are not, you know, um, the challenge themselves, right? It's really about moving your mindset, having that growth mindset and putting it into action when people are being negatively impacted by that. Does that make sense? And so again, we're going to come back to this. The last one, this con this concept of a lack of CEO accountability measures. Um, what I love about this is um, my last CEO was Satya Nadella. And I'm probably not supposed to like call people's names out, but I actually love him. I have a little bit of a crush on you. So Satya, I'm inviting you to join me on this show because you say all the right things. 
I've heard you say them and I believe you, Kathleen Hogan, I've, I've, I've listened to her. And I believe what happens is, you know, as the things that you want to happen, as, as those principles move down into the organization, down to the frontline level, I think that's where you lose. It's like a little bit of game of telephone. So we have some solutions and things that you can do differently to um, optimize and change. And so this is for every CEO. I just mentioned Sati because I know the organization, I know the training, I know the, you know, I know, I know the, the, the solutions, right, that we work through and, and, and the positive feedback that we got for these things. So for me, you know, this is really a call to action for all CEOs, right? We do have solutions. This show is all about, I started a ministry when I left Microsoft because, you know, right now, you know, the churches are being leaned on, looked to. Okay, mute. What I really love about what we're doing, we're, we're bringing forth the right voices. So you guys, in our last few seconds, what I'm going to ask you to do for each of you is to share with me any final words that you would like to share on this concept of, our topic was how to become visible, right? Stopping corporate chokeholds. What advice would you give to leaders to stop corporate chokeholds, to create a more racially equitable environment? I'll start with you, you Isaiah. I think, I think uh, George Floyd's daughter said it best, his lovely daughter. Daddy changed, my daddy changed the world. And that's correct. My daddy changed the world. So I love it. Point you have to ask yourself, and with that statement, we need to follow what that little six-year-old girl has said. My daddy changed the world. So the question about back to this challenge, whether you're a CEO, whomever, how do you want to be part of, of her vision of how her daddy changed the world? I love that. We got literally 90 seconds. Aaron, any words that you would share when you do your equity training? Anything you want to share with people about one minute? Thank you very much, Nathan. I'm going to give you the last yeah. minute, um, Aaron. No, I just, I just believe it's important that I strive to be my best self. And then if you're really a leader that is committed to equity, you are going to create the environment where your employees, no matter who they, what they look like, can be their best selves. And that's giving up some of your power. And it means creating support systems that haven't been there until now. Yes. And I, what I love about this is this really does have to be a, a changing of how we've done things in the past. Isaiah, I love what you mentioned about we really do have an opportunity right now to change things. That's what I'm committed to doing. Again, I feel a little bit like, you know, like I said, I'm the, the Colin Kaepernick of the of corporate world and that I've been taking a knee you know, I have a kind, loving opportunity and a path for change. And so for each of you, what I'm going to ask you to do is to do exactly what Aaron just said. Think about what you want to do to change the world. What are you willing to do to change the world? Hopefully you'll join us next week um, right here on KKNW 1150, kknw.com. This is Tracy Harrell and it's bigger than me.